Luke chapter 24, 13 to 35. Uh, It'll be a, a reading familiar to many of you. That very day, that is the first Easter morning, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they said, still looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, uh, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Um, Let's turn back to the passage that we were reading just uh, a few moments ago uh, from uh, Luke chapter 24. And very familiar story to many of us, I think, the story of the um, two journeying on the Emmaus Road. Uh, We know one of them was called Cleopas. We we have no idea whether the other was a man or a woman. It could have been a husband and wife. It could have been two friends. Uh, we, We don't know. I'm going to ask you a question just to uh, start us off about the length of the journey. How far was 
Emmaus from Jerusalem. Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you're going to say, well, he hasn't done his research very well. Um, it tells you it is seven miles or about seven miles. But that's not really the, the, the question um, I, I want to ask you. The, the question I want to ask you is, bear with me one second. How far was it emotionally? Many, many years ago, I remember reading, I think it was in Reader's Digest. Uh, I, I don't remember most of the, the details of it now, but it was a, a, an American newspaper that ran a, a competition. And there were there were two places mentioned in this competition that were a long, long distance away from each other. I don't remember the names of them. Um, but the, the competition was simply... What is the shortest route between place A and place B? Uh, and you can imagine all the uh, travel uh, gurus and, and, and groupies um, were all uh, working out how you could, you could shave a, a, a short distance off it. When the, the competition winner was actually announced, the answer they'd given to the question was something to this effect. Any route you like, as long as it's in good company. Uh, and the point the person was making was that journeys seem longer or shorter depending on how we are feeling. Uh, and I want to suggest to you that the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, or at least the first part of that journey, uh, and probably for different reasons, the second part of the journey, took a very long time. Because the, the journey was, was punctuated. At the beginning of the journey, uh, these two are walking on their own uh, and they're talking with each other verse 14 uh, about the things that had happened they were discussing it uh, and then Jesus joins alongside them he kind of starts wandering alongside them and polite people as they are no doubt they nodded at him welcomed him uh, greetings friend and but but something supernatural was taking place um they were prevented, spiritually prevented, from recognising who Jesus was. Because we know uh, from the other resurrection appearances that uh, maybe Mary's eyes were filled with tears and she wasn't really looking uh, and she mistook Jesus for the gardener. But uh, when John and Peter and the others see the risen Jesus, they instantly recognise him. The disciples know who it is when he appears in the upper room. Thomas knows who it is immediately. But But this couple... We read in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognising him. Uh, and we're, we're told a number of other things about them. We're told uh, that in answer to the question, what are you chatting about? Um, they, they say, where have you been? Are you the only person who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem? Uh, and Jesus feigns a little bit of ignorance and said what things and their answer is how the chief priests and rulers verses 20 to 21 delivered him up 
condemned him to death and crucified him. And then they add this. And we had, past tense, hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And we're told also in the narrative that they were sad. Their faces were sad. It was a long journey because they were discouraged, despondent, depressed, whatever word you want to use. But they were an exceedingly unhappy people for the first leg of the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, the second leg was quite different. Uh, and we'll come to that in a moment. The second half of the journey to Emmaus was quite different because we're told that, that Jesus began to speak to them. Uh, and then I imagine that time went very slowly because, or, or maybe it, it went fast because they were so relishing the things that they were being told. We'll see how they respond to that teaching in, in just a moment. But, uh, you know, sometimes... Maybe you're in church and, and oh, the preacher is, is just amazing. And, and, and you, you suddenly realise at the end, wow, did he preach for that long? I, I could have listened to him for the whole evening. And maybe there are other Sundays when you think, oh, is that the only length of time he's been speaking? It feels like hours. Time is a relative thing. It can be long or it can be short, depending on what is going on inside us. So, I'm going to suggest to you at the end that the journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem was an awful lot shorter than the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And let's try and find out why. So, if the, the first point is just a question how long was the journey the second point is that the scriptures were explained to them there are three four things that that are relevant um to what we're going to be looking at now the the first of them the fourth I, I'm, I'm just going to mention and not go into this evening we'll look at it on another occasion but the the first is this the savior indulges in an analysis of their spiritual condition. Verse 25, remember they don't know who he is. But he says to them, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. It's gracious of him, isn't it, not to say, do you know what? If you'd have listened to what I was telling you, you'd have understood. But he doesn't. He, he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures uh, and he says, look, if you had really known the scriptures and the power of God, then you would have expected everything that took place. You would have expected the Messiah to suffer. You would have expected him to have been handed over. You would have expected him to be crucified, but you would also have expected him to rise from the dead. Jesus' words, he says, Was it not necessary, verse 26, that the Christ should suffer these things and 
enter into his glory. They've failed to be convinced by the fulfilment of the death teachings of Jesus, his own words. Uh, they've so far failed to be convinced by the testimony of the women uh, and they failed to be convinced by the missing body. They're still sad uh, and they're still talking in the past tense of what Jesus might have done if only. So he calls them foolish and he calls them slow of heart. But Jesus has a remedy for these people. Uh, and the, the second step is to establish the truth of what is to be found in Scripture. You remember the uh, rebuke to them, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, and so verse 27 tells us that Jesus embarked on what must have been one of the most amazing Bible studies to have ever sat in on. Beginning with Moses, that means Genesis. To the Jew, the books of Moses were um, our Pentateuch. Beginning with Genesis and the prophets. So Genesis to Malachi, the whole of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, it's doubtful that he would have had the time to go through every messianic prophecy in, in the Old Testament. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. But, but presumably in a selective way, he chooses right the way from Genesis Presumably Genesis chapter 3 and the promise um, that the serpent's head would be crushed right the way through to, to the, the end of the, the prophets, the, the major prophets, the minor prophets. He expounds to them scriptures that make it clear that the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would be rejected, that the Messiah would suffer death, but also that the Messiah would rise again. What a Bible study. This is all the, the work of God acting, as we might say, on the mind of man. Uh, and it's an essential part, isn't it, of, of conversion. We are slow, foolish, if we do not understand the scriptures. Uh, and so the very first thing that Jesus does is to teach them the scriptures uh, and it's a pattern isn't it that that follows through um, into the the new testament one of the the great priorities amongst the early church is to get to grips with the scripture so we read of the church in acts that it it devoted itself to the apostles teaching now, this was both the apostles teaching them what Jesus had taught them from the prophets, but it was also the apostles building up their own body of teaching, which was to become part of the scriptures, our New Testament. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he tells them that uh, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers. Teaching is there again. Uh, and when Paul is um, sharing with Timothy, he tells Timothy uh, that he was appointed, Paul, uh, a preacher 
and an apostle and a teacher. And you'll know that he tells Timothy to find good, faithful men who will be able, he will be able to teach them the things that Paul had taught him. But he's got to choose his men carefully. He must choose men who are able to teach others so that this cascade of Bible teaching can just flow on through the history of the church. And if you look even casually at church history, you will discover what? You will discover that, that when the church loses the scriptures, loses its hunger for the scriptures, loses its awareness for the scriptures, all manner of strange and weird things come in. In the centuries following, fourth, fifth centuries and so on, it, it gradually became that the scriptures were pushed to one side and the traditions of the church began to become the rule of thumb for what people believed. And the the end result of that was that the, the church was largely speaking in error until a man by the name of Martin Luther opened the scriptures and began to read them. And he was later to say when he was accused of heresy, he was later to say that his conscience was captive to scripture. Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. Uh, and when he was joined by, by others, uh, Calvin and, 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 and a lot of other uh, reformers, the Protestant Reformation took place uh, and the church rediscovered the power of the word of God and rediscovered the necessity of preaching the word of God. And then, of course, churches begin to lose that sense of the necessity of Scripture uh, and other things begin to take place. Uh, and in the, the Anglican church, for instance, there, there was a, a drifting away from the proclamation of the word until two Anglicans, both of them, began to rediscover the word of God. John Wesley and his brother Charles, uh, and, and George Whitfield. Uh, and again, they began to, to teach people uh, and to root them in the power of Scripture. It's the Scriptures that open our eyes. When I was first converted, I was converted through reading the Scriptures. But, but I had no, no teaching background to me. I had no, no gospel to, to, to rely on. Uh, and I'm pretty certain, I've said this before, if you were to have interviewed me for church membership after my conversion, you probably would have concluded that I wasn't saved at all. But because I was converted through reading scripture, I read more and more and more scripture. Um, it, it became very, very precious to me. Uh, and then I began to read other things. Uh, and I began to realise that some of what I was reading just didn't match up to Scripture. It, it didn't tally. It, 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 it couldn't be true if Scripture was true. Uh, and so I went looking for books that actually helped me to understand Scripture rather than books that just argued against the truth of Scripture. 
the word of God was the first thing that the risen Lord Jesus brought to these foolish, slow-witted, sceptical converts. So let's move on to the third thing. The scriptures alone can still leave us in ignorance. The third thing was the Holy Spirit. He opened the scriptures to them. Uh, and you remember the promise that he'd made to his disciples while he was with them. That was fine. He was able to teach them. When he left, he poured out the Holy Spirit, who was known as the Spirit of Truth. Uh, and he promised his church that everything that he had taught them, the Holy Spirit would interpret to them. John 3 and verse 3 tells us this. This is the words of Jesus. Truly, I say to you, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again or unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only can you not enter it without the work of the Spirit, you can't even see it, you won't understand it. Uh, and the same will be true of the Scriptures. The judgment of God, Paul tells us, on rebellious Israel in Romans 11.10 is that their eyes were darkened so that they could not see. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians 3.15, he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul is saying, the sad thing is that they have the prophecies of Isaiah. They have Psalm 22, but, but they can't see Jesus in those Psalms because the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their eyes. So you need two things if you're going to grow as a believer in the way that those two on the road to Emmaus grew. You, you need the scriptures and you need the Holy Spirit. And both are available. The scriptures are there for anyone to lay hold of. Uh, we have so many different translations of it. I wouldn't know how many were present in the service this morning. Probably lots and lots. Different versions. But any of them will be sufficient to, to lead you to the foot of the cross. But you need more than that. You need the Holy Spirit to take the veil from your eyes and help you to see and help you to understand. It's the common fate of all unbelievers to look but not to see. First John 2.11 says, But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Paul says in Acts 28.27, for this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Paul's quoting Old Testament scripture. And that's what he did for these two people uh, and it becomes a, a prototype uh, and it is there isn't it in in the the miracles of the Lord Jesus he physically heals blind people as a sign that that not only can he do it for physically blind but for spiritually blind he enables lame people to stand up and walk in order to prove that he's able to make people able to walk in faith 
alongside him. He unstops the ears of the deaf in order to show that he can unstop spiritually deaf ears. And of course, supremely, he raises the dead in order that we might believe that those who are dead in trespasses and sins can also live. Don't misunderstand me. These were real miracles, real physical things that happened. But they were also, as John tells us in his gospel, signs. Signposts, if you like, to what Jesus was able to do. And he did it here in our passage in Luke 24, verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him. And he vanished from their sight. His work was done with them. They could now see, uh, they understood and they realised who he was. And so the commission that Christ gives to Paul is this, that he is sent to open their eyes, sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the commission. It's the commission given to Paul. But remember, Paul says to Timothy, teach these things to other people, that they may teach them to others. And somewhere along that cascade, you and I should find ourselves standing. Because our responsibility is also to preach Christ. Maybe in the open air, maybe to crowds of thousands, maybe from a pulpit, maybe one-to-one one in our gardens or one-to-six in our gardens, who knows? But to exhort people to turn from darkness to light. But if we're going to do that, then, then we ourselves must be in the light. We ourselves must know the scriptures and we ourselves must know the power of God through the Holy Spirit. So one, we're to teach the scriptures. You and I. Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. He appealed to scripture. Acts eighteen twenty-eight. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ that the Christ was Jesus. That's Paul again. 2 Timothy 3.15. From childhood, Paul says to Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred white writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Who taught Timothy? Paul? No. Apollos? No. Peter? No. His mum and his grandmum, who were believers, and from his youngest age, taught him the scriptures believing that those scriptures were able to bring him to a living, saving faith in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Sometimes people question, what is the, the primary task of a pastor? Well, there's your answer from Paul to Pastor Timothy. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Exhortation, I think, is uh, as likely to be one-to-one, -one, but not necessarily. But there maybe is a pattern for both public and private teaching of scripture. 
2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why can Timothy not need to be ashamed? Well, Paul goes on, because you're rightly handling the word of God. And there are only two ways you can be certain that you're rightly handing, handling the word of God. One is that you know it. You know it from Moses to the prophets. You know it from Genesis to Malachi. Um, you know how to compare scripture with scripture. Uh, and you're growing in that knowledge. I don't mean you've got to have all that knowledge before you start sharing. No, 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 no. Share what you know. Once I was blind, now I see. But as you want to grow as a teacher to your children, to your friends, to your family, then immerse yourself in the word of God. Know it inside and outside. But we've got to come back to our second point again, haven't we? You can have a, a, a an encyclopedic knowledge of scripture. You might be able to quote it from Genesis to Revelation and still not understand a living word of it. So the second point is rely on the Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 7 Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How is he going to help us? Well, we come to a passage of scripture, we just do not understand it. Boy, is this complicated. Don't, don't understand what it's getting about. Well, Romans eight twenty six, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That applies in every area of our weakness. Rely on the spirit of God. As we share with other people, what do we need? Snappy illustrations, eloquence, clever words. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul says, no, when I came to you, you Corinthians, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Ephesians 1, 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised spirit. We've already mentioned that he's called the spirit of truth. Uh, and Paul tells us we're to pray at all times in the spirit. And Jude tells us exactly the same thing. It's impossible to miss the pattern, isn't it? If we really want to understand who Jesus is, and we really want to be effective in sharing who the Lord Jesus is, then there are two indispensable things. The word of God and the power of the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Let me mention the, the one that I, I'm not going to, to spend time on before we think for a moment just briefly, of the journey back to Jerusalem. It was in the breaking of bread that Jesus revealed himself 
to them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognised him and he vanished from their sight. Now, one of the reasons I, I don't want to, to get diverted into this tonight is that I think there is something very, very precious and very real going on there that has to do with two things. And I'll just mention them uh, and we'll try and unpack them at some future time. The, the first is this, the significance of communion. Breaking bread is a synonym that we use, don't we, for communion. Um, Brethren churches, for instance, will always speak of a breaking of bread service. Well, that's a very valid point. But when the early church broke bread, it, it was part of a communal meal. Uh, and of course, when that little party, the three of them, Cleopas, his companion and Jesus, settle down in, in presumably the, the inn or, or someone's home um, in Emmaus and they break bread. They're, they're not sharing communion together. They're having a meal. And in the context of that fellowship, which some people would want to call the agape meal, the, the love feast between believers, in the context of that meal, in the context of something that was going to direct their thoughts towards the Last Supper, and towards the communion service, the new covenant in his blood, it was at that moment that their eyes were opened and they recognised him. Uh, and I just want to put out there that uh, I think there's a, a great deal that we can learn about what it means, fellowship and communion service, breaking of bread service, whatever you want to call it, and are recognising who Jesus is. I, I don't mean coming to say, oh gosh, that's Jesus. No, we, we know him. But there's so much more to know, isn't there? So much more to learn. So we'll leave that one and, and we'll come back to it, concentrating on the, the fact that they set off in despondency and sadness. But look at what we read towards the end. Their eyes were opened and they recognised him. He vanished from their sight. And the first thing they say is, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There's a challenge there. We are the people of the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit who who is Christ's representative uh, in our midst at the moment, he is the one who inspired the writing of the scriptures. He is the one who opens the scriptures. Let, let me just ask you a question. As you read God's word, let me ask you a more fundamental question. Do you read God's word? If you're a believer and, and the answer is no, why not? If the scriptures are what are able to make you wise to salvation, if the scriptures are full of Jesus from beginning to end, why are we not spending all the time we possibly can in the scriptures? Secondly, when you read the scriptures, do your hearts, does my heart burn 
within us? Are, are we thrilled by the word of God? Are we excited by the word of God? Uh, are we looking forward to reading the word of God? Well, you've got the scriptures. The only thing I can suggest is that maybe you're not reading them through the lens of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, if you've prayed and uh, and if he indwells, you will open the scriptures and show you Christ. That That's, that's his, one of his great functions in the world today. So maybe the problem lies in not reading God's word. Or, or maybe the problem lies in not saturating the reading of God's word in prayer. In the presence of of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you these people were changed. Uh, they got up. They rose at that same hour. They, they trudged all the way to Emmaus because well, I don't know where they were going, whether that was their final destination or whether it was a, a waypoint. Um, they'd left the Jerusalem disciples. They'd obviously been amongst them earlier in the day because they knew about the women and they knew um, what Peter and John had seen. Um, but they nothing motivated them to stay. But now they've seen the risen Lord. They They want to get back again in order to find the disciples so that they can add their testimony to the testimony of the women but you read the passage carefully. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying. So as these people rush in through the door, as I'm sure they did, they can't actually get their good news out because the disciples get in first. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they go, guess what? He's appeared to us as well. What a lovely picture of Christian fellowship. People so excited with the word of God, so excited that, that Jesus has risen, that they're tumbling over each other to share their experience of Christ with one another. I mentioned just a few moments ago fellowship and I, I mentioned uh, much earlier um, John Wesley and, and Charles Wesley. John and Charles in their Methodists had what were known as testimony meetings. The Methodists, part of their method was to gather together weekly to share what they'd learnt about the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if at WBC we were to start a testimony meeting. I'm serious. If we were to start a testimony meeting... Maybe started on Zoom, maybe later meet face to face together, maybe meet in gardens. Um, but our primary thing is, is not simply to read scripture together. It's not even just simply to pray together. It's to share what God has said to us through his word, by his spirit, since we last met. That's what early Christian fellowship was about, I think. They talked together about their risen saviour and maybe it's something that we need to instigate um, if we're really to begin to grow 
in our Christian faith. Maybe it's a lesson from the Emmaus Road. Do our hearts burn within us? Do we long to share? Have we learned something so wonderful this week that we need, need to share it with others? Maybe you already do this with your husband or your wife or your family. Maybe you have an outlet for it. But wouldn't it be great if we could bless one another in exactly that same way?